Nuclear naivete. Isn't it cute when people who should know better just don't get how deadly, dangerous, and all-encompassing nuclear weapons are? The existential threat to life on Earth of them? And how the use of even one should be unthinkable? But isn't. Well, when the distributor of a powerful film on nuclear weapons manages to ask the filmmaker, who is your film for, said filmmaker, who is also an award-winning journalist and author with more than five decades of impeccable credentials, gets to answer. That's a classic question in terms of anything that's produced. Who's the audience? I said everyone, because it affects everyone. Anyone in the world will be impacted by this if there ever is any nuclear conflict. And it will change dramatically the world that we live in today. Yep. Well, when you hear a powerful, articulate, award-winning journalist who is committed to telling the difficult nuclear message with clarity, grace, and commitment to say nothing of directing an inescapably important film, then you begin to gain hope because we have powerful allies who also oppose nuclear and are working to help get us out of that terrible seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we spotlight the International Uranium Film Festival, running May 20th to 30th, online and free. And this week we will feature two of three interviews with filmmakers featured in the festival. First, we talk with Robert E. Fry, an award-winning journalist and director of several films, including In My Lifetime, The Nuclear World Project. Then Greg Mitchell, an award-winning author and documentarian, gives us the background on Atomic Cover-Up, which for the first time reveals film footage of Hiroshima and Nagasaki after the bomb, some of it in color, and some of it that was shot as early as the day after the atomic bomb was dropped. We will also have Numbnuts of the Week for Outstanding Nuclear Boneheadedness and More Honest Nuclear Information, than Arizona will ever come up with no matter how many times they audit the 2020 election. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, May 28, 2021, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Actually, the news segment this week was sacrificed in order to make room for the interviews. Next week, we're going to do a roundup and catch up with news stories from the past month that haven't made it onto the show. But I could not let a week pass without our ode to nuclear boneheadedness. 
Nuclear hot seed. Nuclear hot seed. Nuclear hot seed. Num nuts on a week. A recent article that has been smeared across the internet is headlined Scientists Approve Japan's Plan to Dump 1 Million Tons of Fukushima Nuclear Waste in Pacific Ocean. Say what? But look closer. First of all, it's 1.5 million tons, with more being added every day. The headline cites scientists, plural, when only one scientist is quoted in this article. How long and hard did reporter Precious Smith search to find one scientist in Belgium who will back up Japan's and TEPCO's falsely reassuring narrative? What is his background? Who funds him? What strictures or expectations are placed upon his communications by his financial overlords? And why pass off his early comment, this is something that we should be very concerned about, morph into the reporter saying, as though citing the scientist, nothing in the plan gives a suggestion that the treated water will comprise levels of radiation more than the background levels found in the environment due to natural processes. I don't have the time to unpack how much is wrong with that. No mention of the dangerous difference between internal and external contamination or bioaccumulation of radiation in the food chain as tiny contaminated plankton get eaten by ever larger fish, concentrating the radiation until we get the urge to eat some sushi. Oops. Then the reporter passes along one of TEPCO's favorite claims. Only tritium can still be found in any quantity which covers up the fact, first of all, that tritium itself is dangerous and that other radionuclides can still be found in lesser quantities and all it takes for internal contamination to happen is for one atom of any of these radionuclides to get stuck inside you, constantly discharging neutrons next to your internal tissue. That gives you problems. Sloppy reporting, sloppy editing, bogus story. Precious Smith, you are this week's Nuclear hot seed, num nuts on a week. Now here's the first of this week's two featured interviews. We're focusing this week on the International Uranium Film Festival, which is based in Rio, but because of COVID, is being held online. The dates are May 20th to 30th, and all of the films being shown are free during that time. Most years, the IUFF pops up in multiple locations around the world. It's really a traveling film festival. It's been in Berlin, Quebec, Hollywood, Navajo Nation, and all sorts of points in between. Norbert Suchenek, festival founder and general director, and Marcia Gomez de Oliveira, festival founder and executive director, curate a roster of films that provide focused views on a wide range of aspects of nuclear problems. From the uranium-based institutional racism inflicted upon indigenous people around the world, to the ongoing issues faced by Japanese hibakusha, survivors of the atomic bomb blasts in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, to the problems of radioactive legacy waste from the Manhattan Project showing up in such unexpected places as Ames, Iowa. I've been fortunate to attend the festival four separate times, and except for the intrusion of COVID in all our lives, might have attended in person again this year. However, in this instance, COVID's silver lining has been that the 2021 festival is being presented digitally, it's online, for free, and that means that wherever you are, as long as you have a decent internet connection, 
During 10 days, you can be part of this extraordinary outpouring of honest, up-close-and-personal nuclear information, labors of love by all the filmmakers. You can read the entire program at uraniumfilmfestival.org, click on the Rio 2021 button to get the full report. I have conducted three interviews to date with filmmakers that I will be sharing with you. Two this week, one next week. First, the film In My Lifetime, The Nuclear World Project by Robert E. Fry. Bob Fry is an Emmy Award-winning producer of network news programs and independent documentaries for over five decades. His credits at ABC News include executive producer of Good Morning America, and ABC World News Tonight with Peter Jennings. He was a senior producer at Canadian Broadcasting's Weekend and as an independent producer of several films for public television, which include In My Lifetime and has won Emmy and Peabody Awards for his work. Fry joined the U.S. Army in 1958 and worked on nuclear weapons planning while serving in Germany. The experience fostered a lifelong interest, which led him to create the Nuclear World Project. At the age of 81, Fry said that the obligation of his generation is to tell the story of nuclear weapons, to make clear the indescribable damage they have caused, and their potential to end life on the planet entirely. That's exactly what he does with In My Lifetime, the Nuclear World Project. We spoke on Friday, May 14, 2021. Bob Fry, thank you so much for joining us on Nuclear Hot Seat. I appreciate you inviting me, and I look forward to your questions. What is your background, and how did you become involved in and focused on nuclear issues? Background, network news producer, filmmaker for started in 1962 to the present day. And I still enjoy it. I still like the work, the process, as you can appreciate, given the work that you do. As an independent producer, you don't have a bunch of people to work with. But at the same time, I've been very fortunate in terms of the people I've been able to connect with over the years in doing my films, because you don't really do a film by yourself. Never have been able to accomplish that. But I feel that the reason for my interest in nuclear which started in 2008 with the filming of the two documentaries I've done to this point in time, really spawned from, I was in the army in Germany in the late 50s. And one of the jobs I had was working in a nuclear weapons planning group. I can't go into details, but that's really when I was introduced to this topic. And it stayed with me. And when I was the executive producer of World News Tonight at ABC, I commissioned a 10-part series on Russia called U.S.-USSR, A Balance of Power. And of the 10 pieces, which incidentally were recognized with an Emmy and DuPont Columbia Awards, five of the pieces had something to do with nuclear weapons. And so it stayed with me all these years. And that's what I'm dedicated to, telling this story. Your film, which is in the International Uranium Film Festival this year, In My Lifetime, The Nuclear World Project, I've now had the opportunity to see two-thirds of this because this interview came up very quickly. And I found, first of all, that it is 
devastating, but there was no intrusion of your voice in this other than perhaps by the choice of the clips that you use and the order that you put it in. There's no manipulative narration that's brought into it. So it's very clean and you let the story tell itself. Given the range of material you had to choose from, how did you approach it? As a filmmaker producing programs for public television, my interest is in informing the public, no matter what your point of view may be, because that's the role that I play. And also having come out of a network news background, I had the opportunity over the years to tell many different stories, but I feel it's important to really take the time. I've been very fortunate in terms of all the connections I've been able to make, not only the interviews, but the places that I've gone and telling the story and continue to work on, that there's so much, as you appreciate, given your work, there's so much detail that you have to pay attention to. And I noticed one of the mantras in your pledge, if you will, and your work with your website is to lay it out there, but make sure that you have the facts and that it's truthful as much as one can be. I mean, there's always some subjectivity to whatever you're doing, but the fact is I think it's more important that the people that I've interviewed, no matter what side of the fence they're on, and as you could see in the film, there are several individuals from different parts of the nuclear world, it's important to have their voice in the film speak. Obviously, as you also appreciate, when you're editing, there takes time, you have to develop a narrative and put together a story that can be told. But that's really the approach I've tried to take and have taken over the course of my career. I've done a lot of my own research, especially into the latter part of the Manhattan Project, into the dropping of the bombs in the aftermath. And Even with the research I have done, many of the clips that you show of Oppenheimer, of General Groves, of Leo Szilard, and others are brand new to me. What did you have to do to dig up those clips? How far did you go and where did you have to go? And what were the arms you had to twist? First of all, I started off in this business as a researcher. There was a anchor for people of a certain age who remember his name, Frank McGee at NBC News. So my work was in doing the research. For example, one of the projects I was given to handle when I was there was who would be the successor to Khrushchev. And I came up with the two people that in fact did succeed Khrushchev. But the point being, you can't go deep enough to find material. There's always something new. Mm-hmm. Also, I've, I'm very fortunate that I have a very good archival researcher in Washington that I work with, but also I got material from Los Alamos and other places as well. So I try to find as much material as I can in developing the projects, because I think in terms of this story, the overall story, there are so many images and so many voices and other components that can be factored into making a film on this subject. So I've spent a lot of time, have built up a pretty good archive by now. So I appreciate your comment about it because I think you know so much about this story, but you know, you keep finding new material. I also find areas where material that used to exist have been scrubbed 
such as all of Edward R. Murrow's reports on this that used to be on YouTube and somewhere over the last number of years has disappeared. You mentioned in our talk before we started the interview that there were amazing juxtapositions that happened to you. One in particular where you were in Los Alamos and after that went to Japan. Describe what that was like for you. Well, it turned out um, as I was going through the uh, travel Actually, I started my first filming for In My Lifetime took place in Oslo, Norway. There was a very important conference, January of 2008. And then I went from Oslo to Reykjavik with the author Dick Rhodes. And we filmed at Hofti House in Reykjavik, where, as you know, Reagan and Gorbachev met. But then while I was there talking about research, I went to the archival department of Icelandic television and dug out footage of Reagan and Gorbachev after their meeting. They both had news conferences. And that material I have in the film, juxtaposing the two leaders speaking in the aftermath. As you know, this was the moment the world has come very close to ridding of nuclear weapons. Of course, they couldn't cut the deal. It's a longer story to tell. But essentially, it boiled down to one word, and they couldn't agree on that word. And so this kind of story, it was striking to me, being at the Hofti House, being in the very room where these men met, and then having commentary along with that. But since then, the world has just progressed in a much different way. And I think even Reagan and Gorbachev hoped for. But then, as a result of that, I went on to uh, several trips. What you were asking about, I went to Los Alamos and interviewed Sig Hecker. At the time, he was the director of Los Alamos, not, it was after he'd been the director. And then arranged for filming at the Trinity site. And it was mid-July. And I had already planned to go to Hiroshima and Nagasaki for the anniversary in 2008, August 6th and the 9th. So it just happened to be that experience that I then edited when I edited two years later. I worked with the editor in the same time frame as the filming took place because I felt, interestingly, it was sort of energy in that time and space. But that's how it happened. It just happened to be coincidental, certainly in terms of going to Los Alamos, but it wasn't when it came to Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I have to ask, what was that one word? I knew you were going to ask. In going back, I just pulled my transcript of In My Lifetime off my shelf of that sequence that's in the film. It had to do with the word laboratory. Jack Matlock, who had been in the room with Mr. Reagan, said, this is a quote, They came very close to concluding an agreement to eliminate nuclear weapons in 10 years. One of the myths is that Gorbachev, by demanding 10 years in laboratories, was trying to kill the Strategic Defense Initiative. Keeping it in 10 years in laboratories would not have killed it. In fact, we needed another 10 years in laboratories. So that was it. So here we are today, after 1986 that moment in time where there was an opportunity, but 
opportunity was lost. That's so sad. So much of this makes me want to weep on a regular basis. In the making of the film, what was it that surprised you or shocked you or saddened you the most? That nuclear weapons still exist. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and again, as I say, it was a very sobering experience being in that room at the Hofti House. But I think also, look, to be realistic about it and having worked within the environment, there's dedication on both sides. Those that want to have the weapons and keep them, maintain them, and those that want to rid the world of the weapons. It's a struggle. It is an existential struggle. And your work, obviously, is very focused on what can be done to rid the world of weapons. But there is the counterpoint. And actually, in my second film, I address that by having individuals on both sides of fuel of the fence. And it's hard. It's difficult to understand why, except there are so many different forces at work. And I think from my vantage point, it's important to present what they are. I mean, what are we now, 76 years later, and we're still dealing with this. And as you also know, in 1945, there was a whole movement with uh, Szilard and even Oppenheimer, although Oppenheimer was a longer story. They said, okay, let's shut it all down. Of course, that didn't happen. And so I think that with General Groves, I mean, obviously, he was interested in keeping the ball rolling. And I think when the Russians finally were able to put their first test together, it was almost over at that point. I mean, once the Soviets had their own nuclear capacity, the rest of it became with the UK, with France, and then with China, the original P5, if you will. And interestingly enough, all of them are the P5 and the UN, and they still essentially are the primary players in the UN. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that they are the controlling powers in the UN. In my lifetime, the Nuclear World Project was finished in 2011. Now, since then, we do have the passage of the United Nations Treaty to Prohibit Nuclear Weapons. And we've been witnessing the astounding work of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANN. Yes. If you were to make this film again today, 10 years later, what, if any, changes might you make to it? Well, first of all, I'm planning to do another film, so I'm not going to make any changes to this. The second film, incidentally, The Nuclear Requiem, I produced that in 2015, but I held off distributing it until 2017. And before I did it, I realized when the president of the United States became Mr. Trump and a bunch of other things happened during that time, that I updated the film in 2017. It still holds pretty well today. It had to do with both the Iran deal and, of course, when what happened there, all of those different things. And it's time to, there's another story in all of this. So I look at it more in terms of the continuum, as opposed to saying what I'll change in any particular film. And look, I'm not only a documentary filmmaker, I'm also a news producer. So, you know, you look at it in terms of the flow, the stream, the continuing story, as opposed to, I wish I could do something with that other because I think in my lifetime has its own value as an historic documentary. You state 
in your description of the film, quote, the story is a morality play telling the struggle waged over the past six and a half decades with the last act yet to be determined of trying to find out what is the way beyond. In your view, is there a way beyond? And if so, how can we either begin it or add to it? One of the things I have on the wall in my office is optimism is to be engaged. Pessimism is to be resigned. I tend to be an optimist, as I know you are. You have to stay engaged. You don't know. And Sergio Duarte, who is in this film, as well as in the other, said, you know, you got to just keep plugging along. You don't know how it's going to turn out, but you will if you don't do anything about it. So I think it's a matter of, as you do in your work as well, you just have to stay engaged. You don't know where the, what was it, the Truman Show and the crack to the outside world. It's a challenge. And I think also one of the things I noted on my website, I have what I call the uh, connection portal with all of the organizations, many organizations that are involved in this, because I felt it was important. There are so many voices and individuals and groups, not only in the United States, but around the world that work on this a lot and on different sides of the fence, if you will. So I think it's important just to keep the ball rolling and, you know, see what you can do to change the dynamic. And I think that it's always a challenge. And look, George Schultz, there is a piece in in my lifetime toward the end of the film where he was saying, wake up everybody, talking about the dangers of nuclear weapons. I mean, he, of course, was in the government. He was at Reykjavik. But then after he left, he realized, along with the other three horsemen, he was very aware that he had to keep banging on the door because he said, we have to change this dynamic. So, I mean, I think, you know, if you have someone of that stature telling that story, it is important to realize that those that have been there know the realities. And those that haven't, that are working on changing the dynamic, you've got to just give everybody the chance to express their points of view and put it out there. But the only thing I can say, the reason I stay engaged in this is it is a continuing ongoing challenge that needs to be addressed and understood by anyone watching my film. And in the case of the festival, one of the things that I think is very important about the work of the festival is that it provides an opportunity to see many different perspectives, not only in terms of nuclear weapons, but in terms of the nuclear power realities, as you concentrate on Chernobyl and Fukushima, because the voices can be heard, they can be understood. The key is, to me, we make the story, we put it out there, but it takes the people to watch that can be moved to respond. It's not an easy topic to deal with. And a lot of people don't want to deal with it. But if we don't, I don't want to predict what will happen. So it is important for us to continue to do the work. Where has the film been seen and what is your hope for its future distribution? Well, the film in the United States, it was first distributed in 2013 via American Public Television. And so for the first three or four years after, uh, it had 4,000 airings on public television stations 
around the country, as well as on the digital world channel. And also, I work with the video project out of San Francisco. They distribute the feature length version, and it goes to schools and people that just want to buy it. And also, because of the Uranium Film Festival, they featured it in a couple of their festivals, as well as in this upcoming one in Rio. And also, I have a distributor in Europe that has distributed the film 15 countries and regions around the world. I was asked, who's the audience? That's a classic question in terms of anything that's produced. Who's the audience? I said, everyone, because it affects everyone. Anyone in the world will be impacted by this if there ever is any nuclear conflict. And it will change dramatically the world that we live in today. And I think also in terms of the ongoing distribution, I mean, for example, this festival, it's like Palatin in uh, Have Gun Will Travel. You have it available, you put it out there, see who picks up on it. It's the same thing with the nuclear requiem. It's there and it's important just to have it available. It's a record, right? And also you pointed out earlier on, there's a lot of archival material, even a lot of the specialists that know this field. As you said, we're very surprised with some of the footage of the historic voices that are in the film. But they're the seedbed, right? They started this. They're the ones that made it happen. So you've got to understand what their mentality was and why they did it. And also, Leo Szilard has a different voice, but it was important to hear what he had to say years later. And actually, that interview was filmed a pretty short time before he passed on. It was an important voice for getting rid of the weapons because he knew, he knew the realities. He was at both ends of the equation because That's he right. was the one who wrote the letter that he gave to Einstein to deliver. Yeah, you're right. And, and also that sequence in the film that shows Szilard sitting with Einstein is that letter was written that you pointed out. Yeah. Absolutely. Priceless. Yeah. Bob Fry, your film, first of all, is monumental and deserved to be seen by everyone. That's a bad marketing term because if you're saying everyone, you're saying no one. But I really am saying everyone because it really brings across the devastation without bludgeoning us with the information. As I said, there's a very delicate sense of restraint and narrative to this that comes directly from the material. This is not an imposition from you. I truly appreciate your skill, you're having taken all your decades of experience in news to create this. And I wish you all the best with this and the rest of your films with a gratitude for you being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. And I appreciate your invitation. And from your lips to God's ears and the viewers that can see him, but also I must congratulate you on your continuing work and voice in putting out what you put out there all the time. Very impressive. Thank you very much. Award-winning filmmaker and former ABC News executive producer, Robert E. Fry. His film is In My Lifetime, The Nuclear World Project, and I strongly urge you to watch it. And after that, do what you can to get it into schools, libraries, community groups, anywhere where people who don't know the truth about nuclear weapons need to learn the truth about nuclear weapons, or, as we discussed earlier, everywhere. 
More information is available on the film and Bob's work at thenuclearworld.org. And of course, we'll link to it on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 517. We'll have this week's second featured interview in just a moment. But first, nuclear problems are going to continue to be with us forever. From uranium mining and contamination, to weapons production, to radiation leaking power reactors, to still not having a way to safely store the deadly radioactive waste produced by all these endeavors. Nuclear is government and business not caring how they contaminate the world as long as they keep making obscene profits and fool themselves into thinking they are immune to the consequences of their actions when they are not. Meanwhile, we all have to deal with the dangers of radioactive contamination that will not go away on its own ever. Quite frankly, nuclear is a mess. And that is why you need Nuclear Hot Seat. You've learned to count on us to get into nuclear stories with facts, continuity, and context, as well as a healthy dose of skepticism and a little bit of humor wherever we can. We use only vetted journalistic sources that can be trusted to tell the truth. This is journalism that mainstream media is unwilling or unable to provide. Nuclear Hot Seat is the only program you can count on to report the ongoing, evolving nuclear truth that the nuclear industry would rather we not hear about, let alone understand. And that's why the time would be right now to support us with a donation. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on that big red donate button to help us with a donation of any size. That same red button is now where you can set up a monthly $5, the same as a cup of coffee and a nice tip to the barista here in the United States. So how about buying Nuclear Hot Seat a metaphoric cup of coffee? I promise it will go for social media reach and planning, not a caffeine fix. Please do what you can now, and know that however much you can help, I am deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Here's this week's second featured interview on the International Uranium Film Festival. We've all probably seen small snippets of black and white film from on the ground in Hiroshima or Nagasaki, footage taken shortly after the atomic bombs were dropped on those cities in August 1945. But that footage is just part of the story. Film shot by Japanese newsreel companies starting the day after the blast, as well as U.S. Army color footage of Nagasaki, are more extensive than we've been led to believe, and they have been suppressed. Now, a single film brings together not only that footage, much of it never before seen, but narrative by the cameraman, American and Japanese, who shot it. Atomic Cover-Up is a just-released film that shows the devastating impact of nuclear war on human beings. Director Greg Mitchell is the award-winning author of a dozen books, including 2020's The Beginning or the End, How Hollywood and America Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. His previous books on the atomic bombings were Hiroshima in America with Robert J. Lifton and Atomic Cover-Up. He has served as chief advisor to several documentaries, including Original Child Bomb, which was screened at the Cannes Film Festival, and was winner of the top prize at API Silverdocks. 
Atomic Cover-Up is brand new, having been released in April 2021. We spoke on Saturday, May 15, 2021. Greg Mitchell, thanks so much for being with us today on Nuclear Hot Seat. Happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Let's start out with a little bit about you. What is your background and what has been your involvement with nuclear issues up to the point that you started working on this film? Uh, I've been a journalist for the past, I guess you'd say, half century. I've been a magazine editor of national magazines here in the U.S., and I've written about a dozen books. I co-produced a movie not long ago about uh, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. I was involved as chief consultant to a couple of uh, major uh, documentaries. So this is the first film I've actually written and directed myself. But my involvement with nuclear issues goes back, I mean, of course, I could say my entire life since I grew up in the 50s and 60s. So I always was very much affected by the nuclear fears of that period. And then in the early 1980s, I became the editor of a magazine called Nuclear Times, which was the Bible of the anti-nuclear movement in the U.S., had had an international influence as well. So from about 1982 to 1986, I was the editor of this important anti-nuclear magazine. And so that's when I really plunged deeply into nuclear issues. And as part of that, I uh, during that period, I earned a grant to go to Hiroshima and Nagasaki for over a month. So uh, obviously, I became really expert and interested in that, uh, everything relating to the atomic bombings, even more than I was before. And I interviewed dozens of people, including the survivors and um, radiation experts and experts on the the decision to drop the bomb. But relating to my current movie, the turning point was in 1982, I was exposed to and got to interview one of the two key figures in my movie, the American former army officer who helped shoot this footage that was then suppressed for decades. I first met him, and when I became editor of Nuclear Times, the very first feature I assigned and published was on this gentleman and the suppression of the nuclear footage. I basically have written about it and been interested in it ever since, so that really goes back. I could say my film is 38 years in the making. I didn't work on it nonstop for 38 years, but I have been interested and continued to research and been involved with that subject for that long, really. So you were aware of the footage. When did you first encounter it? When did you first start finding it? And what did it take for you to be able to do so? The Japanese were the first to film in Hiroshima and Nagasaki immediately after the atomic bombings, uh, shooting black and white newsreel footage. When the Americans arrived in September of 1945, shortly after, the Americans seized all that footage. It's black and white newsreel footage. And the American military began doing their own filming in color, which was very rare at the time, shooting in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So basically, the the two army officers who kind of led that unit, who were the two key figures in my film, created incredible color footage of the uh, aftermath and the survivors, focusing a lot on the people, which most focuses very little on the survivors and the victims. It was on, uh, you know, rubble and destruction of the, the actual landscape. So not only did the Americans seize all the Japanese footage, but then this American, even though it was shot by the U.S. military, 
when they brought it back to the U.S., it was seized by the military and it was suppressed for decades. So what the film shows is that the, the black and white Japanese footage did not emerge anywhere until about 1970, 25 years. And the American uh, color footage even later, around 1980, when it became known that this footage existed. That's how long it was suppressed. So my film shows some of the footage for the first time. It shows the footage, both the black and white and the color footage in 4K for the first time. So even if you've seen some of this footage, you haven't seen it this way before, the quality of the images. And like I said, a lot of it, no one has really seen before. It hasn't been used in films to this date. And so it's a combination of actually showing some of this footage, but also the stories of the American, particularly a man named Herb Susson, who tried for decades to get this footage released and talked to everyone from President Truman himself to top media figures to Robert F. Kennedy and others to try to get this footage released. And it actually only became known around 1980 by pure chance. And so the, that's why the film is called Atomic Cover-Up, because it explores this cover-up. Why? You know, why was it covered up? Why was it suppressed? Why is it important today? Why do we even care about this today? In watching it, I've done a lot of research on my own about this particular era. But first of all, it was more footage than I've ever seen about Hiroshima and Nagasaki from on the ground. And secondly, it cast it in a completely different light because there was a personal human element to it. There were pictures of great devastation with one cart being drawn by a horse or a mule with a couple of people behind it. Apparently, everything they owned in the world was in there. And the juxtaposition, when we say bombing somebody back into the Stone Age, this was really starting to look like it. So it was very deeply impactful. Go into a little bit of detail as to why you think the footage was suppressed for so long, especially from the American public. It's still a sensitive subject today. I mean, I wrote a book a few years ago with Robert J. Lifton called Hiroshima in America, which was all about the aftermath of the bombing and how Americans, uh, both the media and public opinion, dealt with it ever since. We called Hiroshima America's raw nerve. It's something that America still has not faced to this date. It's something we perpetrated. Now, people could disagree on whether it uh, was a good idea or a horrible idea or a war crime or whatever, but the fact is Americans still are not, have not really faced it because it's, it's this raw nerve. They don't, don't really want to touch it. And this was particularly true after we dropped the bombs. You know, the war ended soon afterwards. It was kind of easy to kind of claim that the, it was the bomb that ended the war, even though it's not precisely true. And certainly we wanted the American public to feel that, you know, the bomb was, uh, you know, was a good thing so that we could build more of them and, and begin testing them. And indeed, we then very quickly went ahead with our nuclear testing program, building more bombs, bigger bombs, uh, eventually the hydrogen bomb. So it was important to cast the bomb in, in kind of a useful role and not something that killed hundreds of thousands of civilians. And so what the Americans were exposed to in the many years afterwards was almost only scenes of rubble, scenes of landscape, pictures of the mushroom cloud, great destructions, surely but not people. 
And what these films showed was focusing on the people, on the survivors, mm -hmm. and what happened to them afterwards and how they suffered and what they looked like. So this is what radiation disease looks like. We didn't want anyone to know about or know much about radiation disease. So here's images of people who are suffering and dying from radiation disease. And I think in watching my film, without me beating it into the ground, probably 90% of the survivors and victims who are shown are women or children. They're civilians. You know, that's not cherry picking. So when you're going through, okay, I'm going to show this footage and this hospital scene and these patients, and they're almost inevitably women or children. And, and those were indeed 90% of the victims in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So without, I, I mean, I hope that kind of gets through to people, even if, you know, every five minutes, I'm not saying the victims were civilians. Just watching it, you say, geez, there's one kid after another, and there's yeah. another kid, and there's a woman, and there's maybe an elderly man, and there's another kid, and there's another kid. Those were the victims. I think that's why this footage had to be suppressed for so long, because it was too, uh, too focused on the human toll of the bombings. What did it take for you to be able to garner this footage and be able to use it? Was there pushback? Was there a long process involved with it? Is there still resistance to it getting out? Throughout 1980, it was in the National Archives in the United States. And uh, partly uh, thanks to the article I originally published, filmmakers and the media became aware of it. It really hadn't been used until then. And so starting in, say, 1983, filmmakers and the media started using small bits of it. Uh, you know, I always tell people, look, this footage is not now suppressed. I didn't do anything like I went in and dug it out or did a Freedom of Information Act. But the fact is, is that in these, this 40 years, very, very little of it has been used, partly because the media in the U.S. does not focus on this issue. They don't do very much with it. When they do do documentaries or news coverage, they tend to use the same images mm -hmm. over and again, what's unusual about my film, which is unique, and believe me, perhaps like you, I've seen dozens and dozens of documentaries on this subject over the many years. And so there could be a feeling of how different could this film be. But this is the first film to look at this subject from the eyes of the filmmakers, of the documentarians, of the newsreel, people who shot the newsreels and the cameramen. The entire film is told in first person by yes. the witnesses. And the witnesses are all the filmmakers. This, this is not the usual talking heads. Some expert comes on and explains, you know, what people saw or why it was important. Every single word in the film is from either the Japanese or the American cameramen or directors. And they talk about what they saw and then what happened to the footage afterwards. So it is completely different than any film ever on the subject. I wanted to get to that narration because it was very compelling and it was seamless between the Japanese and the American voices. Now, you said that you had actually interviewed Lieutenant Daniel A. McGovern from the yeah. Army, who was the cameraman for the color footage in Nagasaki. Where did you locate the other voices that you end up having read in voice over? Were any of these people still alive when you started? Or did you have to go to interviews and journal entries? Yeah. What was your sourcing of it? McGovern, who was the head of the American Project, I interviewed it again back in 1983, my 38-year saga here. I interviewed him and I got documents from him 
formerly secret documents that he sent me. Herb Sassan, the other American leader, I interviewed him at length at that time. So their voices in the film, although they've passed away long ago, almost all of it is based on interviews I did with them myself. The Japanese newsreel people, everything is taken from oral histories that they did or autobiographies that they wrote, the interviews that they did. So everything is taken directly from their words that I had translated for the first time. No one has ever translated any of these things into English. So I had their words translated. And then the figure who I I think is totally fascinating is, uh, you might say, the in-between figure. It's a guy named Harry Mamura, who was a uh, well-known Japanese cinematographer. In fact, he shot Akira Kurosawa's first feature. He then did work in Hollywood for uh, studios. Then he went back to Japan. So when the war came, he was in Japan. But the American military knew about him. So when they went into Hiroshima and Nagasaki, they contacted the Toho studio and asked, could could we use Harry Mamura to shoot a great deal of the American footage? So you have this very unusual and compelling, profound situation where you have a Japanese man shooting a great deal of this footage of Japanese victims for the Americans. And again, I had the relevant parts of his autobiography translated into English for the first time. So in the film, you hear Harry Mamura talking about in the first person what it was like to shoot this footage of his countrymen, badly injured, dying countrymen for the Americans, and how he felt quite different because he was a Japanese himself working for the Americans. It's that humanizing voice that comes through that really very quietly underscores the tragedy of what we are seeing. And I appreciate the fact that you weren't coming in with an agenda. You weren't trying to make a point one way or another. You were just presenting the information and allowing us to invest ourselves in what you were showing and what we were hearing. And the combination I found devastating. I should never watch films like that right before I go to bed. <laughs> it's a nightmare, an international nightmare. It's still living with us today. So maybe that's a proper, maybe it should give us nightmares. The film just debuted this year. And I believe this is the second showing of it in connection with the International Uranium Film Festival. What are your plans for it or what is set up for it to go forward from this point? It's been submitted to other festivals. It just was released last month. So it's really just beginning its path. We have a distributor in Europe who has made sales to the leading uh, media outlet in Spain. Great. And uh, leading media outlets in Northern Europe and the Baltics and part of Russia. And they're, again, they, they're hoping to place it you know, all over the world. But again, it's very early on. So, and although I, I, I've always made a big point of the resistance of American media to this subject. Certainly, we we have hopes that one of the streaming services in the U.S., whether it's Netflix or Amazon or public television or Hulu or whatever, will pick it up. And and maybe for this coming August, you know, there's always a little more coverage. You know, last year was the 75th anniversary, and I had expected great deal of coverage. Actually, there was very little in the U.S., and the little that there was was almost all very much pro-bombing. 
So it was the opposite of coming to grips and very disappointing. But every year in the anniversary, when the August 6th comes up, there always is a little more coverage. So we'll see if we get a major airing this year. Here's hoping that you do. It's such a difficult subject matter that I really do hope that not only you, but all the films from the Uranium Film Festival get picked up as like a channel on Netflix so that people have the opportunity to see the range of what's out there. Although this seems like a very familiar subject and people have seen images for a long time, what I seem to be getting from a lot of people who do see the film is that they're kind of amazed. I think it's put together in a kind of an artful way. People can watch it and feel that it's it's kind of a very artful presentation and not polemical, political, gory. They can come away, like you said, maybe a little bit shattered at the end and decide to look into this issue more or, or take some action. One can only hope. Greg Mitchell, thank you so much for the film you made, for making it available to the International Uranium Film Festival, and for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Director Greg Mitchell on his film, Atomic Cover-Up. In our post-interview chit-chat, I learned that the film of Hiroshima and Nagasaki that Greg used is all stored at the National Archives and is considered to be in the public domain. Just a thought for you filmmakers out there to know that when you need source material for your nuclear project, that's where it's available. We will have links up to the Uranium Film Festival, and I want you to listen next week because we have a different kind of film than these two. It's called Of the Sense of the Whole, the Network of Physicist Hans-Peter Dürr. And if you ever wondered what a pacifist physicist is all about, this is the film for you. I talk with director Klaus Biegert, who progressed from studying with Edward Teller, the father of the H-bomb, while he was a student at Berkeley, to being an outspoken pacifist physicist. That phrase, by the way, pacifist physicist, is one of the most important that I've encountered because it recasts physics and physicists as something that can sustain life, not destroy it. That's next week on Nuclear Hot Seat number 518 on May 25th, 2021. Activists, activists, The Black Hills of South Dakota and Wyoming are the sacred center of the Lakota, sometimes known as Sioux, Treaty Territory, and they are being threatened by a radioactive uranium mining project, the Dewey Burdock Project, proposed by Powertech Uranium. In the waning days of the Trump administration, the EPA granted Powertech two permits and a Safe Drinking Water Act aquifer exemption without meaningful consultation with the Oglala Sioux tribe and without conducting a cultural resources study of the proposed mine site. The Lakota people now have a petition up with Change.org demanding that the EPA reverse their water permits decision. We will link to it, of course. A new campaign is coming out of the work of Mary Olson of GenderAndRadiation.org, joined by Beyond Nuclear and Radiation and Impact Project, Heavy Hitters All. It's called A Female Body as Basis of Radiation Safety Regulation. Make no mistake, this is a movement and a necessary one to draft a new reference model for determining protective levels from radiation exposure, and it will protect all of us. 
We'll have a link to their recent press release on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 517. And just for fun, the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, the group behind the annual update on the Doomsday Clock, has put together a Spotify playlist of songs inspired by said clock. Included are the Smashing Pumpkins 2007 song, The Doomsday Clock, Iron Maiden's 1984 recording, Two Minutes to Midnight, and the Who's song from 1982, Why Did I Fall for That?, which specifically references the Doomsday Clock. There are many more as well. Those are just the group with which I have a bit of familiarity, or at least I recognize their names. But check out the playlist. It's fun. And here's one that didn't make it, but is my personal favorite. One minute to midnight, one minute to go, one minute to say goodbye before we... This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, May 18, 2021. A reminder that next week we will have a news roundup from the past month of stories that didn't previously make it onto the show. I was once telling someone in the entertainment industry about Nuclear Hot Seat, and she tisked and gave me a disdainful look and said, Is there really enough nuclear information to fill an hour-long show every week? When I got home, I couldn't stop laughing. Remember, that's next week. Now, you're listening to this show, but don't take a chance of missing any others. The easiest way to get Nuclear Hot Seat and not miss a single episode is to go to the website, look for the yellow box, put in your first name, put in an email address. Hey, you get the show every week as soon as it posts. Now, if you've got a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment to help us out. On the website, click on the red button, follow the prompts, and do what you can to help. Know that we will be really grateful for your support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2021, Libby, Halevi, and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you nuclear war does not begin with the weapons going off, it ends with the weapons going off. That is your nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep. Because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. One minute to midnight, one minute to go, one minute to...